we're in lesson six, biblical theology. Um, last week, um, does anyone remember what we talked about last week? Okay. Yes, progress. So, so we talked about typology. We talked about the covenants. We talked about the land promise. I was trying to give you an idea of how, you know, this way of reading the Bible works. Well, now we're going to start at the very beginning and talk about what covenants are. And then in the next weeks, we'll look at every major biblical covenant. And then at the end of that cycle, you know, there, there are six, maybe seven. We'll, we'll see what we decide by the end of this. You know, is the covenant at Sinai and the covenant at Horeb in Deuteronomy, are those separate covenants or are they same, the same one? You know, Ab- the Abrahamic covenant, the promises in chapter 12, the covenant in 15, 17 and 22. Are these one covenant or multiple? We'll have to, you know, decide how many there are, but we'll look at all of these things in the coming weeks, and then we'll talk about the new covenant, and then the the implications for this way of reading the Bible, how these covenants find their climax in Christ, and then we'll talk about the nature of the church through that progression of the covenants. What is the church? And we'll even talk a little bit about eschatology, Some might love that, some might hate it, but I think this will be helpful as we continue to progress and think about the story of the Bible. And then at the end of our class, the last lesson, we'll talk about finding our place in the story and start to think through how do we interpret the events of our lives and and fit our story or interpret our story through this bigger meta-narrative of Scripture. But today we're going to talk about the covenants. What is a covenant? Um, You've got the notes. I'll, I'll see if I can mirror mine on the screen so that way you can just follow along there if you want. Um, the notion of God's kingdom features throughout the Bible. So I've told you that I'm working a lot from this book, Kingdom Through Covenant. We'll talk about kingdom as we look at every single covenant, um, but we should at least define what the kingdom is. You know, this is a big question. What, what is the kingdom? And I, I just suggest, you know, I don't know who I'm quoting here. I'm quoting somebody or paraphrasing them. God's kingdom is God's rule or God's reign over his people in a place. So these three elements make up a kingdom. God's rule over his people in a place. And that happens through the progression of the covenants. That's what, that's what I'm trying to show in this class. So for example, under the Adamic covenant, we'll talk about that next week, the first humans act as vice regents or lower level kings and queens, queens, exercising rule on God's behalf over the entire creation. Um, so there you have, you know, God exercising his rule through people and over people in a place, all of creation localized in the garden. Um, in the Davidic covenant, David and his offspring act as vice regents or lower level kings, exercising rule on God's behalf over the people of Israel in the promised land. So again, you have God's rule over a people in a place. And then we want to see what that looks like in the new covenant. This is what Jesus cared about a lot. You know, if you read the gospels, Jesus didn't say things like, um, I'm here with the message for you of how you can go to heaven when you die. He said, I'm proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. So when we, we need to think about these concepts of kingdom because that's foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And kingdom only comes through covenant. And what I want to get you to think about by the end of our lesson is to think of being a Christian in terms of being in a covenant relationship with God. Um, when we think about our relationship with God that way, 
I think it helps us understand our responsibilities to God, uh, the nature of our relationship, and then the nature of our relationship to each other. Um, throughout the covenants, uh, God's kingship is expressed in different ways. Um, and the covenants, you know, find expression in different ways throughout the Bible. But we need to start by asking, what is a covenant? Um, I like Tom Schreiner's definition of covenant. He says a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Um, there, there's a lot that goes on there, but a covenant is a particular kind of relationship. It's chosen. We might call it an elective relationship. But, you know, if you think about it, you also have covenantal relationships that aren't chosen. So with your children. So the, the kinship and covenant go together. Uh, there's a covenantal relationship there. I'll talk later about the two defining words that relate to covenant relationships, um, faithfulness and steadfast love. Well, that's how the relationship is described between parents and children. So there are some non-chosen covenantal relationships, but generally speaking, a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. All right. Um, I want to distinguish between covenants and contracts, though, because covenants are foreign to our world. And, and when the word shows up, it's generally not used in the way that covenants were, you know, thought about in the ancient Near East and in the Bible. So when, when uh, Kate and I signed our first apartment lease, you know, I read every line of that thing because I cared. Now we, now we move a place and it's just like, yeah, we got to sign it to live here. We don't read any of that. We just, oh, you know, do it. But in that line, they, they called our contract a covenant. And um, that was interesting to me because there was no covenant love felt between <laughs> myself and, and the people that operated our, our apartment complex. I never met them. They never saw me. I never saw them. The higher-ups, you know, corporate. And then the lower-level manager, this vice regent, who's, you know, maybe uh, exercising dominion on behalf of corporate, she was not a nice lady. And when things went wrong, like, we moved out of there, and um, they were charging us a ton of money because the fixtures for the toilet paper roll were different than what they had on file. We didn't change that. Whoever was there before got charged for that too, probably. There is no loyalty or steadfast love there. So the contracts and covenants are very, very different. Contracts deal with product. Um, covenants deal with relationships. So there's a little chart here of the way that most um, contracts and covenants are laid out in terms of the form and literary structure, the occasion, the initiative, orientation, termination, violations, all these things. But what I want to point out is that the occasion for a contract is that there's an expected benefit to come out of this. Um, the occasion for a covenant is a desire for a relationship that's foundational to everything included in the contract. So there might be benefits, there might be obligations, but fundamentally a relationship is at stake there. Um, so when, when a contract is talked about, relationships are there, right? Um, this, this apartment manager, we had to talk to her on occasion. There was some sort of a relationship there, but it was an exchange of goods kind of relationship. We paid money, they gave us a little box with heat and a not working air conditioner, right? Like that, that's the way contracts work. Covenants um, have a familial, we might say a family relationship um, in view. At the heart of the covenant then, is the relationship between the parties that are characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's this word pair. Um, you'll learn two Hebrew words today. Hesed and emet. 
um, there's now a publishing, co a Christian publishing company in Canada called H&E um, Publishers, Hesed and Emmet. Um, so, so these words show up in other places. There's this coffee shop in the town I grew up in run by, a, I think, a Jewish guy called Hesed Coffee Shop, you know, and, and the point is, you know, Hesed carries the idea of showing kindness and loyal love, and the second word, Emmet, carries the idea of faithfulness or truth, and that's truth to something. It's not kind of the idea of, you know, something that corresponds to reality, but are you being truthful to someone? And the way that these word pairs operate, they, they show up together, and you can't separate them, really. So one guy, Peter Gentry, talks about them as um, two speakers. I, I don't know anything about speakers. Kevin, help me out if I'm wrong here. But there are some audio files that are recorded, you know, to where I think different things come through on different sides of the speakers. Um, I le recently listened to a sermon, and they, they didn't have everything connected right, so I only got it in one headphone. You know, it's like, that's annoying. But the point is, when you have them both, they complement each other, and a full message comes through. They're saying the same thing, but they're also saying different things, aren't they? Um, so you can't separate them. They, they come together. Um, we could think about this in you know, dictionary terms. Like um, if you say the, the phrase by and large, you know, is that, that's a phrase, right? You can't separate those two things. Um, or you can't separate, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good and tired. Well, you don't separate out good and tired as separate things. These things work together. So there's love that's exercised in faithfulness and truth. Um, and these are the, the way that we talk about God's relationship to his covenant people and vice versa. This is also the way that parents talk about their relationship to their children, right? So in Proverbs, when you have, you know, the father relating to the son, it's going to be in Hesed and Emmet. Um, and whenever these words show up then, even though the phrase covenant might not be in view, we need to think in terms of a covenantal relationship. And so um, in Mike, uh, Micah 6.8, we memorized this recently, right? Um, he showed you, oh man, what is good? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Well, th these phrases show up there. Um, and, and there are other ideas that come along as you go, like justice, right? Uh, right judgments. But the point is when you see Words like steadfast love or covenant faithfulness, it's, these are translated a bunch of different ways because it's hard to translate them. They're too rich and uh, broad to be able to use just one word um, in our translation. But when they show up, think in terms of a, a covenant relationship. Now, when we think about covenant relationships, um, there, there are often obligations that come along with them, right? Uh, but the because the relationship is foundational and not the promises or obligations, the obligations transcend anything that's been written in the letter of the law. So think about your marriage covenant or promises, right? Um, I think we use the Book of Common Prayer wording for ours when we said our vows, those vows, those promises. Um, if, if the promises, if, if your marriage was a contract, and anytime something went bad in your marriage, you would look at those vows precisely and say, am I violating any of these particular obligations that I put myself under? And if not, then I can do whatever I want here. So if we didn't spell out in our vows um, that, you know, whatever, I, I don't know what it is, um, we're going to take turns making breakfast, uh, and, you know, that's not spelled out there, then, un, you know, I'm not going to make breakfast for my spouse if they don't make it for me. Like, you know, but because the relationship is primary in the covenant, it's not a contract. You say, I'm going to go beyond the letter of the law 
we might say we'll, we'll operate based on the spirit of the law, we'll embody the kind of relationship depicted in the covenant legislation of our marriage. We're, we're going to go beyond this. And if you don't go beyond that, you have a pretty crummy marriage, don't you? Um, if, if you only look at the things on there, that's, that's not helpful. Um, you see this in the Bible as well. Let me give one example. We'll look at this next week. But when Adam and Eve are in the garden, I'm going to say there's a covenant there between God and all of creation. Um, what's, what's the one stipulation that God gives them? Or, yeah, one negative stipulation. Don't eat of the tree. And then there are some positive ones, you know, like be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, um, protect the garden, you know, these sorts of things. Um, but relationships are in view there such that when a serpent shows up, uh, regardless of what he was going to do, t- if he showed up and said, Eve, you, you need to kill Adam because there will be a better Adam. You, you know, you don't need this guy. You can off him. Would it have been wrong? Would she have violated the covenant to, to murder her husband? Yeah, that would be a covenant violation, even though it's not spelled out. So you see what I mean. Covenants go beyond the letter of the law, uh, the letter of the legislation of the obligations and the promises to focus on the relationship and the manner of relationship is going to be in faithfulness and steadfast love. Okay, um, this, is, this is why I think the New Testament authors don't give us a long list of um, commands. They give us really general commands because we've now seen in Christ what faithfulness and steadfast love looks like and that's what we're to embody. Um, so we don't need you know, a bunch, of, a bunch of case laws telling us to build a parapet around our house. You know, our, our roofs are, no one goes up there probably anyway. But we know um, I'm, I'm going to treat people uh, with thinking about their best interests. So I'm not going to fly down the road at, you know, 120 miles an hour in my neighborhood, regardless of whether or not there's a speed limit posted, because I'm going to deal with people in steadfast love, faithfulness, looking out for their concerns. Um, all right, let me give you one example. So, okay, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. This is the problem with getting off the notes. Covenants create kinship relationships. And by, you know what I mean by kinship. Um, you know, we sing about it in all the Christmas carols of your kin. You're, you're, it's family. And this is a fictive kinship, but it's a legal fiction. That doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it's not by blood or DNA. But it's, it's a legal fiction, but it's a kinship that's created through these covenant relationships. You're like family now. Two people who weren't family are now family. And marriage is the easiest covenant relationship to point to where this happens. You're, you're now closer in obligation and relationship to your spouse than anyone you're connected to by blood. Um, that, that's the way covenant relationships work. Now, you might not see this, obviously, in the covenants because they're foreign to us. We don't do these ki- types of covenants. But I want to walk you through Exodus 24 in the covenant relationship that Israel enters into with God. You know, we'll, we'll pull this up here. Um, because I, I think these things are, are interesting to see. Um, so Moses is talking to Israel here, um, or I'm back to 23, 24. Okay. So they go, they go up to the mountain, you know, Moses in verse 23 reads all the commands of the Lord and the ordinances. And the people respond in a single voice. So God's saying, you know, I, I release you out of Egypt. I'm going to love you, care for you, provide for you. And here are your obligations. And all of the people replied, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So it's like they're at this ceremony and they say, I do, right? They're, they're going to do this. 
So then Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. Um, he, and, and eventually we get these in the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone, right? Um, and I was listening to a guy talking about Hittite treaties from the ancient world the other day. And he was saying, you know, sometimes we debate how, we're, how are the Ten Commandments split up on these two tablets? It's like they weren't split up at all. All ten were on each of them because what happened in the ancient Hittite treaties and everywhere else is you would take, you would keep one um, record of the covenant legislation with you, with one partner, and if it's made with a deity, and then you'd put it at the, the foot of the statue of your God that you're worshiping. So one belongs, one copy goes with the God, and one goes with you. And what, where does Moses put the Ten Commandments? In, in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, so I thought that was interesting, but th- there's a record of the covenant promises and obligations, and then he did this weird thing. The next morning, he set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when you read for the 12 tribes of Israel, I think we should just say representing the 12 tribes of Israel because the pillars didn't do anything for them. You know, So you have an altar. This is going to represent God's presence. And then you have the 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he took young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Um, why bulls in this instance? Maybe two possible answers. One, bulls are more expensive than chickens. So you're showing this This means a lot to me. You know, we're, we're sacrificing an expensive thing. We're not sacrificing doves, you know. The other thing could be that perhaps um, bulls were sacred animals in the Egyptian world. You know, maybe some have suggested this. And so by offering the sacrifice of a bull, they're renouncing the former idolatries. And I think that's significant because what does, you know, Aaron do, like, right after they they get the the ten words? Well, they they make a calf, a golden calf, a a baby bull, and they start worshiping around this thing. Anyway, they they said they were renouncing that, I think, as they're sacrificing these bulls. Uh, Then Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. Um, This this gets kind of gory, doesn't it? Um, And I, I... uh, I don't know that I'd recommend this, but if you've ever seen previews for this TV show called The Vikings, and some of the, in some of the previews they have these, you know, ancient Vikings sacrificing animals to pagan altars, and it's very bloody and gross. And and I don't know that it's good to you reflect on those things too long. But if you th- if you start to reflect on that, you'll start to get a sense of the scenery and what's actually going on here. Um, this this is a big deal. There's blood in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. So representing God's presence, half the blood goes on the altar. And then he took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. And once again, they say, I do. You know, we're, we'll keep all these things. And then in verse 8, Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Um, what, what do you think just happened there? Two non-blood related individuals now become related as if by blood. They're now family. And, and, you know, that kinship relationship is described in different ways in in the Old Testament. In Exodus, Israel is called God's firstborn son. Um, Other places, Israel is pictured as God's bride. But both of these are covenantally, you know, fictive kinship relationships now between Israel and God. And the splattering of blood shows we're, we're now like family. We're, we're together here. Um, and then, well, and if you think this is weird, I was thinking about this. There's this episode on the Andy Griffith show. Um, 
season three, episode ten, I think, is is written there for you. <laughs> I I did look it up. I didn't just have that on my on the on you know the tip of my tongue. But I remember watching this in blood brother ceremonies. I don't know if any of you have done that with any of your friends, where you know you cut your palms and you stick an owl feather between it, and now you're you're blood brothers with with somebody, and and you're closer with that guy than you are with your real brothers. Well, we have these ideas even in, in our society and history, even though they're just cleaned up a little. We're not sacrificing a full bull. But the point you see there is blood is shared uh, between two non-relatives that makes them now closer than blood relatives. Oh, there's a problem for accordance. That's, that's problematic. Well, what happens next is these, uh, the, uh, Moses takes the 70 elders and I think Joshua too, but he takes them and then they go up to the mountain and they eat a meal before the presence of God. Uh, this is like, you know, marriage ceremonies now, maybe not all of them have meals, but a lot of them do. And what's the point? The point is saying, we're now family. We're sharing a meal together. Um, we're, we're communing together. In the ancient Near East, you don't eat with people that you don't trust, right? Um, you, you eat with people that you trust and that you're sharing communion with. Uh, think about this. I forget the chapters that this is in. Um, I think Genesis 17 and 18, maybe, um, when when the Lord appears as three people and he goes to Abraham, Abraham's sitting outside of his tent. He runs and greets them and he invites them in for a meal, right? And what do they do? Pardon? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. They're, and, and they accept right away. And he slaughters the fatted calf for these guys and he, he has this wonderful meal with them. Well, when these guys go to Lot, um, Lot invites them to meal as well. And they refuse and refuse and refuse and finally give in. And you see the contrast between Abraham and Lot. And um, I think it's communicating. We don't trust you. You're not on our side. You're n- you know, we're going to protect you because of the prayer of Abraham, but you're n- you're, um, it's not the same kind of thing. So these meals are really, really important. And in whatever way the Lord manifested his presence, Moses and the elders saw, saw God and ate in his, they ate and drank, and God did not harm them. They, they can now approach in some measure of safety as they commune with God. Um, Jesus uh, picks up on this language, and he, he um, at the Lord's Supper in Mark 14, uses the same language when he says that the cup is the covenant of his blood and he gives them bread to eat together and he anticipates a future meal. And so the covenant relationship, the family relationship formed at Sinai with Israel is not that different than the family relationship that we now have with God through Christ. We're part of this covenantal family. Um, We should reflect on this theme because in the, in the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ, where Israel was described as the bride of God. We're described as the children of God in 1 John 3, where Israel was described as the firstborn son of God. Well, these covenantal overtones should define our relationship or the way that we think about our relationship with God. We are, we're now entered into a fictive kinship, a family relationship with God. All right, let me pause there and see if there are any questions on that idea of covenants, emphasizing relationship in in bringing about kinship through them. Okay. I think this all makes sense. I I think that everything we're going to talk about today, you'll think, maybe, 
oh, I didn't think about it that way, but it makes total sense, and actually that fits with everything I've ever thought and believed. I just haven't thought about it in a while. Uh, hopefully that, that will be the case, because these things on one level are, are somewhat obvious. Um, but covenants didn't originate in the Bible. You know, it didn't, the, well, this, this is a conundrum, and I don't know how to articulate this or think about it, but if there's a covenant of creation, then the way that God operates and relates is covenantal, and so then it's not surprising that variations of covenants show up across the, the planet, right? Um, it's, it's written into the fabric of, of the way that God made us and relates to us, so we're not surprised to see them. But Moses didn't write Genesis 1 prior to the rest of human history. You know, it, it's not like this was written down already. And so the way that he describes these things will take on features of covenants that he was aware of. You know, he, wa- he was a well-trained Egyptian. He, he knows about the way covenants are structured and the way they work. And so it's not surprising that the book of Deuteronomy, the whole structure of that book follows the structure of Hittite treaties, you know, covenants. So, so it's not surprising that these things exist other places. Um, so we can look at covenants that are made in other places, and they help explain the covenants that we find in the Bible, and, and vice versa. They're, they're mutually explaining. Um, but when we look at covenants throughout the history of the world, especially in the ancient Near East, there are different kinds of covenants that are made. Um, well, some people distinguish between different kinds. Some people will distinguish in one category between conditional and unconditional covenants. I don't think that's super helpful because whenever, wherever there's a relationship, obligation goes both ways, doesn't it? Um, there's never a relationship that's truly one-sided. So they're on a spectrum. You know, the father-son relationship might be m- more heavily on the father should always love their sons no matter what, you know, who they are and what they do. Uh, but the relationship works both ways. Um, and then there are other categories that are given uh, treaty versus grant versus kinship. And uh, these categories represent different emphases. They, you can't distinguish covenants categorically. So you, you can't really say um, this covenant with Abraham is a treaty covenant, not a kinship covenant, or something like that. We'll look at all of these categories. We're going to, I'm going to lay them out anyway because they're helpful for filtering things, but you just have to resist saying, Every treaty, every covenant can be categorized neatly into one of these. Does this make sense? Okay. The biggest thing I want to say is that if you've heard um, that covenants are either conditional or unconditional, I, you need to let go of that thinking um, because that will inf- you'll see this as we look at every covenant along the way because they're both. Uh, there, there are features of both, and if you try to categorize them as one or the other, or as one type of covenant, you lose the right tensions that are included in the covenantal promises. So, for example, when we think about, you know, the Davidic covenant, uh, traditionally that might be listed as an unconditional covenant. I will establish the throne for David for all generations. But when you read the actual language there, it talks. there are a bunch of if statements. If your offspring obey the law. And, and so there's this tension of the covenant must be fulfilled, but there's an if statement, so how does this happen? And then the resolution to that tension is found in one king who will keep the law and embody the law, Jesus. So if you, if you relieve the tension too early, the story loses its potency. And really, I think the conundrum that Jesus solves 
it, it just seems like, ah, it's not a big deal. Like, this is a miraculous, surprising thing that Jesus is the greater son of David. Um, so we don't want to lose that by categorizing covenants to, you know, black and white, conditional or unconditional. Um, the categorical covenants, I'll pause and say here, I, I'm following Kingdom Through Covenant by Gentry and Wellam, but I think they underdeveloped this section a little bit. So there's a different book called Kinship by Covenant by a different guy named Scott Hahn, and I think he's really helpful on these things. I wouldn't recommend picking up the book and trying to read it. It's much too, it's his dissertation republished, so it's kind of a drag. And then um, he converted to Roman Catholicism after this. So the other things that he wrote, the only other book I know of is called Rome Sweet Rome. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting him. Recognize that I know these problems with him. So if you look it up, I know these things, but I think he adds some really helpful pieces here. He's not all wrong on, on everything. And he's clever, right? I mean, how can we not love that title? Um, so anyway, um, he, he lists kinship covenant, treaty covenant, and grant covenant. And I've made a little chart for you. I did three charts this week for you, so hopefully you, you know, appreciate charts. Um, the kinship covenant is usually between two equals. Um, there's obligation kind of equally back and forth. It deepens and formalizes a loyalty that's already there, and then it focuses on interpersonal relationships. So a good example of this is marriage, right? There's a relationship, maybe that's already there, depending on your culture, may, maybe not already there. Um, the, the covenant made between David and Jonathan would fit into this category. Then you have what's called the suzerain vassal treaty. This is a treaty between a great king and client kings or vassals. You know, if you can think in like medieval history of where you have the, the rich landowner and then the serfs who will work the property, maybe it's similar to that. But there's an obligation of the servant to the master. Um, it protects the rights of the master. It's establishing his authority over the lesser kings. It cultivates future loyalty, and it focuses on international, you know, interstate, different nation, political relationships, maintaining this master's power. Uh, the royal charter or land grant, this is a land grant or, you know, some other privileged position that's given as a favor by the greater king to the lesser king as a reward for the good things that they've done. So this, this emphasizes the obligation of the master to the servant. It protects the rights of the servant. It's a reward for past loyalty. And then it, it focuses on these relationships. We'll, we'll see these picked up in the biblical covenants as we go. Um, but as you'll come to find, these categories are not black and white. And there are elements of both in many of the covenants that we look at. And all of them result in kinship. That's why I don't know that Han's category of a kinship covenant is super helpful um, maybe I think we could just call it a parody covenant or something like that. But kinship results from all of these covenants. All right. Any questions or comments up to this point? Okay. Really briefly, covenant making in the Old Testament and the ancient Near East. Um, number one, a covenant does not always or necessarily initiate a relationship. This is this doesn't matter, but if you're reading books about covenants, you'll see there's a big debate about this. Uh, can you have a prior relationship before the covenant or not? Um, you know, and then some other features. Must an oath be present there? These sorts of things. There's this guy named Paul Williamson who wrote a book. Um, now I'm forgetting the title. 
sworn by an oath or something like that, the progression of the biblical covenants. Um, he takes a slightly different view. He, he makes a really big deal about these things. So if, you, if you're uh, one of the seminary guys here and you're picking up that Gray series, the New Studies in Biblical Theology edited by Carson, it's a volume in there. It's a good volume, but it's, it's maybe just a little bit different than what I'm saying. Um, a covenant initiation, uh, misspelling there, a covenant initiation includes standard language indicating that a covenant is being entered into. So when a covenant is being you know, made for the very first time, the standard language is to cut a covenant or, or karat berit, right? So berit is this Hebrew word for covenant. Karat just sounds like cutting something. You know, I think it just looks like that. But you'll see that you know, animals are divided in half and um, you know, the blood pools to the middle and individuals walk barefoot through the covenant together. Uh, they're co- cutting a covenant for the first time. This, this doesn't always happen that way, but to cut a covenant is the standardized language for starting a covenant for the first time. Now, covenants can be revised or reestablished or renewed down the road, and there's a different term that's used, you know, to establish or to uphold. Um, Hakim Barit is our, our Hebrew phrase there. When that shows up, that indicates there's already been a covenant in place, and now it's just being renewed. This will be important down the road because the first time the word covenant shows up in the Bible is in Genesis 6.18 or 8.16. 6.18, I think. And it's, it's to Noah. And Noah says, I will establish my covenant with you. It's Hakim. So it's pointing out there's already been a covenant in place, the creation covenant, I think. And, and now I'm just renewing it with you in the same way that the Abrahamic covenant is renewed with Isaac and Jacob and, and other people down the line. There are other ways of, of ent- you know, describing entering into a covenant um, and, you know, the other prepositions that, you know, to enter into a covenant. Um, even that, I don't want to be, you know, obscene here, but that's, that's a language in the Bible for sexual relationships where, where you enter into, you know, something. Well, well th- that's the language of the covenant because it's showing this, the, the new relationship and the tight bond that's being formed through, through the covenant. Um, the, the Bible is not quiet about sexuality in, in these sorts of things. So it's sometimes hard to know, how do we talk about these things here? Um, and, and, how, and we need to think about these things because it's in the Bible and it helps us understand things in the very different way that God makes a covenant with his people than pagans would make with their, their idols. Um, you know, pagans would think about, you know, their fertility gods and they're thinking, if, if we get it going on down here on earth, they'll get it going on up, up there in the heavens, and that's where a fruitful world will come from. Well, God just rules out all of that in the way that he makes covenants with people. Um, he, he's the creator God, and he creates through speaking, and so he speaks things into existence. So he's a very different kind of covenant God than, than the pagans were. Um, usually there's a, um, well, there's a binding and legal status given to a relationship through a formal and solemn ceremony. As a general rule, covenants belong to the public square. That's why, you know, when someone elopes or privately gets married, it's a little scandalous, right? Because it's a covenant out of context. These things happen sometimes in private, especially when someone's life is at stake. Think of David and Jonathan, you know, their covenant, that's kind of hidden. Um, but these covenants are generally public. Covenant generally also includes, whether implicitly or explicitly recorded, you know, the records of covenants don't include every feature of it. So sometimes we assume these features are part of it. We just don't have the document, you know, we, they, they didn't have, um, what are the people called to type 
on the weird keyboards that capture every word. Yeah, they don't have stenographers um, capturing every moment. So some of these things are implied, but generally there's an oath or a promise or a ceremony that's recorded. And these ceremonies include, like, they, they ceremonialize and symbolically depict the blessings and curses of these covenants, right? Some are more clear than others, um, like the slaughtering of the animals and walking between them. That's, that's pretty clear. Um, if, if you violate this covenant, we're coming after you. You're, you yeah, you're, you're going to be like these animals who are, who are cut in half. Um, so these things show up in covenants most of the time. Comments or questions there on covenants in the ancient Near East? All right, we've got to keep moving here. Um, minor covenants in the Bible. There are at least six kinds of covenants that show up that are, you know, five of them are, well, six of them are human to human, and then there's divine human covenants. I just listed these here for you to show that covenants show up in a bunch of different places in a bunch of different ways. Um, they, they accomplish different things through the formation of a relationship but coven covenants were just a common common feature. We want to emphasize the major covenants in the Bible as the, the plot line of this story. Not every divine human covenant falls into this category. So when you think of Numbers 25, 10 through 13, right, you have this Israelite guy and this Midianite woman fornicating in front of all of Israel, essentially, and Phineas runs in and, and um, stabs you know, stabs them through with a spear, and God, really, you know, stops the plague on Israel, and he makes a covenant with Phineas and his descendants. Well, that's a divine human covenant, but it doesn't move the plot line forward. Um, you know, it, it establishes this priesthood with, Phineas was a Levite, right? He was a son of Aaron. But, but this isn't a major biblical covenant, even though it's a divine human covenant. Um, we want to look at the major divine human covenants, there are six of them. I put them on page 10 for you. Though, of course, it's debated, as I already mentioned, how many covenants did God make with Abraham? How many did he make with Israel? Um, these sorts of things are questions that we have. Is there actually a covenant with creation? These are other questions that, that we have. Um, but I think these six mark the plot line of the biblical story. And in fact, you can tell the story of the Bible by just referencing each of these covenants. Now, I, I typed up... Gentry and Wellam's 300-word explanation, you know, telling of the story of the Bible, rooting them, you know, using the covenant as hooks to hang all these things on. And I found it remarkable that they did not reference the Davidic covenant. So they're telling the story without the, the Davidic covenant, but how can the new covenant be kept without the Davidic covenant and Jesus being the fulfillment of that? So I would challenge you, read, read this. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole thing, but maybe sit down and think about the biblical covenants and try to write in 300 words or less the story of the Bible. The other problem is, so you know, when two authors write a book, generally one author, they write according to their specialty and then read each other's stuff and edit it. Gentry's an Old Testament guy, so everything in this section I think Gentry wrote. And when you look at his description of the story of the Bible in 300 words, there's nothing about the New Testament in there. It's all Old Testament, but we need the New Testament. So um, maybe that's a weakness of the book that we should point out. Um, but I challenge you, try to tell the story with the biblical covenants. If you get rid of the covenants, this Jewish scholar wrote this, if we could delete all references to the covenant, which we cannot do precisely because it is regularly integral to its context, we would just have an a, anthology of stories. 
as it is, we have a structure that can house a plot. These, these covenants keep us from having just a bunch of stories mixed together. And I think that, unfortunately, Sunday school teachers and preachers and churches treat the Bible as if it's just an anthology of stories, this muddled collection of stories, some of which we shouldn't tell, the one we're going to read in two weeks from Genesis 19 being one of them. And um, so we read these stories, and then we read them like Aesop's fables, and we find a good moral of the story, and that's what the Bible's about. Well, outside of its redemptive context, that might be true, but these covenants set up a skeleton of a plot line, and we read them within the progression of redemptive history so that they're not just moral stories. Certainly morality is taught, right? When, when we read of David and Bathsheba, we learn that was morally bad, but there's also a question of redemptive history in the covenant estate. What, what happens when God's covenant king fails to embody the law? You know, we have this even when Solomon shows up, right? Solomon, what does he do? He prays for wisdom, God gives him wisdom, and then we tell the story. Um, if God ever asks you what you want, don't ask for riches, ask for wisdom, because then you'll get riches too. Great moral of the story. No, that's not it. There's a redemptive historical thing going on here because what's the very next thing that happens? Solomon acquired him for himself horses from Egypt. But what's, what does Deuteronomy 18 say? Um, the king that you appoint should not be like other kings. He should not get for himself horses from Egypt. He needs to write out this law every day and read it every day and carry it with him. So from, we're wondering, what's going to happen to this covenant king who failed once again? Who, who even after he's received all the wisdom of God, that's not enough for him to be the right kind of king. Well, the redemptive covenantal context um, makes these stories not just morality tales, but the story of redemption. Um, in the biblical covenants, the triune God pledges his loyal love and faithfulness to us. This pledge in Psalm 117, this is just the shortest psalm. To, if you ever want to memorize a psalm, take this one because it's only two verses, and it talks about the, the wholeness of God's covenants. His faithful love that has said to us is great. His faithfulness that emet, or truthfulness, endures forever. Hallelujah. So that's, that's the story of the Bible in, in